but it's curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Good morning, Curious Humans. The seeds for this conversation were planted at the end of last year when I was listening to a podcast called Hack Reality. And Chris shared her phone number at the end of the episode. And I ended up sending her a voice memo about the poet David White. And we since became really good friends. And when COVID hit, she followed an intuitive hit to reach out and ended up living here with us in Oaxaca for about a month. And Chris has one of the most eclectic backgrounds you'll come across. She went from founding a venture-backed AI fashion company to hosting a podcast about the future of tech and more recently has taken a left turn into the world of trauma healing and spent the better part of the last three years designing a card deck for exploring shadow emotions, which has just launched on Kickstarter. And you can find links to this in the show notes. So as I said, one hell of an eclectic background. And as such, our conversation dances between her insights exploring the money stories and the rock bottom moment of having to shut down her company, her process of learning to connect with her intuition and following an assignment to follow her curiosity walking barefoot around San Francisco and her experiences working with MDMA and LSD-assisted therapy. And then, honestly, things go off the deep end, and she talks about a kundalini awakening she had in an ancient Mayan ruin. And around about an hour in, she shares her roadmap and toolkit for those of you out there who might want to begin exploring shadow work and navigating existential crises and exploring some of the roots of these repressed emotions that we all have. Okay, well that is more than enough rambling for me. If you appreciate this conversation, please do give Curious Humans a review on iTunes and share it with someone who you think might appreciate it. All right, and with that, I give you this slightly bizarre roller coaster of an episode with Chris Beasley. Welcome. We're in Oaxaca. We're in Oaxaca. We're on a rooftop about 50 meters from the Pacific Ocean. And there's really good surf there. There is, yeah. <laughs> I've broken my board twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I've broken my will to learn how to swim <laughs> once. <laughs> uh, and you're leaving in like two days. Yeah. Two or three days. Yeah, yeah. But um, I will return to Mexico to Mexico Magico. Mm. Yeah, it feels like it was just a, an introduction to this land. Totally. Totally a taster. I really appreciate this land that the culture knows that it's magic. Even the mm. government knows that magic is real because they have a Pueblo Magico. Um, can you even imagine in the United States or in the UK or whatever, having a city that was officially designated as magic city? Is, is that a thing? It's I, a thing. I didn't realize that. Oh my God, it makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Wow. It does, it does have that sense to it. Um, so let's, let's dive in with a question that I always start these conversations with, which is what were you curious about as a child? And were you a particularly curious child? 
I mean, I don't know if any of your guests are going to say, nah, I was really dumpy. <laughs> that was super boring. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I mean, I think kids are naturally curious and, mm. and we get it sort of conditioned and acculturated out of our out of our systems in the schooling system. And mm-hmm. you know, it's like a, an anti-curious factory. <laughs> no, you will not get to study what yeah, you are interested in. That's so true. You must know math. <laughs> you must know. Nothing about, okay, I love math, but um, I'm not sure that knowing how to do calculus is actually the most important thing for people to be on track for. So Say enough, everyone. I don't think it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are arguably much more useful human skills, like being able to feel and name your emotions. That'd be so cool. Wouldn't mm. that be so cool? <laughs> so what were you curious about? I was curious about uh, when I was, I think about three, I wanted to be an astronaut, not an astronaut, an astronaut. <laughs> um, and as I was sort of tracing that forward, I was also like, what was I interested in as a middle school kid? I was interested in getting really, really, really good scores on the ACT, but why? Wait, astronaut being? An astronaut. Okay. An okay, astronaut. Okay. <laughs> um, but basically, I wanted to get out of Arkansas. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to see the universe. So I think adventure was my primary driver as a little kid mm. were there any any stories of adventure that you read growing up in Arkansas that kind of like epitomized that for you you know I've I've never completely uh, gotten over my grandmother throwing away this multi-volume set of fairy tales that mm. I have no idea what the name of them was but I remember a story about sort of a trickster character that came to a village and basically pulled the wool over everybody's eyes by saying he was a great magician and he could control the weather. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the townspeople would decide and give him a schedule of what days they wanted to be sunny and what days they wanted to <laughs> rain, he'd just get right on it. And of course, obviously, none of the townspeople could decide what day they wanted what, because one person needed rain for a harvest and another needed it to be clear for their daughter to get married. Mm. And so Mm. he got to live in the lap of luxury on on the dollar of the townspeople (laughs) because they never (laughs) figured it out. That's a great fairy tale. (laughs) Yeah, so I have no idea what that says about me, but... (laughs) Interesting. Perhaps the trickster archetype has always been a fascination of mine. Yeah, and maybe that's when kind of the seeds of this idea that we are living in a magical world were planted by mm-hmm. reading some of those fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from then on you you kind of went to higher education and what was the what was like the, the arc of your of your journey? Yeah. Um well I'll start in uh, I ended up going to college a year earlier than planned. Um, because I just had enough of my high school and Mm -hmm. someone at the closest university let me know that there was an early entrance and I already had made my super fancy test scores. And so I applied and they gave me a full scholarship as if I was one year older. Mm -hmm. So I started college when I was 17 and, um, went in computer science for a couple of years. And then as 
as fate would have it, the art building was right next door to computer science. And even though I'd never done any art in high school for whatever reason, I just wandered through there and I liked the way the building felt. And there was mm-hmm. art all over the walls and there were silly signs over the toilets. And <laughs> <laughs> there was a sense of, mm-hmm. of humor and exploration there that I didn't find in the same way in computer science. So... I took one semester to put my toe in the pond, Mm. and then at the end of that semester went ahead and changed my major, so I ended Mm. up doing a studio fine art degree with a computer science minor. So, you know, I had semesters where I was doing chemistry, physics, and discrete equations, and, you know, all this this math and all that with, um, you know, sculpture one and drawing one and (laughs) Mm. graphic design. And end up writing a thesis about web usability because user experience wasn't even a term that was known to us at that time. <laughs> yeah, right. I imagine there weren't many women back then kind of in the computer science department either. Not very many. Yeah, not very many. But my aunt uh, actually did management information systems in the era where women were really common in those programs. And there was just sort of this, this dip because the original computers were women. It was a business, like you could have a business card, like computer was a business title. Mm. They were humans. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> it was like an accountant, the person who accounts, the computer, the, the human who computes. Mm. Mm, wow. And it, it seems like there's this interesting theme of uh, kind of an intersection of that, like, analytical side of your brain with the with the artist. And I found that myself, like, I studied economics at university, but I was really more drawn to the philosophy and I think that the kind of ambitious part of myself that wanted to like please my parents and to achieve was like oh I'll be really good at economics and then my curiosity led me more into philosophy and I kind of have been that's always been something of a attention kind of straddling the the art and the science absolutely is that something that you found yourself oh absolutely I've been I've been talking about that in job interviews since I think I was (laughs) in college Mm. yeah it's that is, and I think that we all have one or two or three central tensions, creative tensions in our life, and that we walk the path. We never, ever resolve them because they are paradoxes. They can't be resolved. Mm. I think that the balancing in between those things is never a static balance. It's always tracing the arc between those two poles. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So... You graduated, I presume. I did. I did. <laughs> Five years later. And what were you what were you thinking? What was going through your mind as you graduated? Um I was still pretty much in small town Arkansas picket fence land. Mm-hmm. I had ambitions to build my own house, which I totally didn't have enough money to do, but um yeah, I was very much in that like three bedroom, two car garage, two Toyotas in the <laughs> uh, garden and feather the nest. I've got four planets in Taurus. So like feathering the nest is a big piece. I mean, it's a real part of me. It's a real part of me. But um, I hadn't yet embarked on those adventures. I thought that I would be you know, if you'd asked me when I was 13 or 14 years old and I had all these early admission college packets from universities all over the U.S., I would have never thought that I would go to the university just down the road. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I thought I would go to Duke or MIT or a big school and that that is <laughs> that is not what I did. <laughs> so what happens after you graduated? What what did your did you kind of have a clear trajectory with your after your graduation or was it more of a kind of experimental period? I had a clear trajectory in that my job that I had been working, I mean, I, I made websites, I was in that art and computer overlap mm-hmm. of, of web design and web development, because I was doing both the coding and the design, back when one human did all of those things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was the web person. <laughs> I did all of the web things. I knew the CSS, all of it. Um, so yeah, I pretty much stayed on that straight and narrow and in a way it just took the next logical step. So my trajectory was from web person, web designer developer to uh, specializing a little bit more, um, continuing to do the front end development, moving into product management and user experience as the field developed and um, eventually product management and worked at Mozilla, traveled the world, mm, cool. <laughs> got into the whole open source community and saw the power of mm. worldwide open source and, you know, just had an extraordinary experience. That's when I feel like I got to start to bring the adventure in right. was, mm. you know, world traveled for me started when I was about 29. Mm-hmm. I actually had enough money to do it on my own. And then ultimately with Mozilla being able to travel around um, on the corporate card, which is amazing. I found out that I actually love business travel even more than personal travel (laughs) because there's people there for you to do things with. You're not just seeing the tourist sites. You're there to do a thing, which I really appreciate. Mm. Amazing. And so what was the, I didn't actually know part of the story. What was the transition between working at Mozilla and having that kind of, like amazing corporate travel to founding your own company. What happened there? I was at Mozilla during a really challenging time of leadership turnover. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty clear to me that my project, which is called Persona, is a federated authentication project. So taking on like a huge worldwide problem that's super snarly and requires something the size of Mozilla to even attempt. Mm -hmm. So that was cool to work on something that big. Um, But I saw that my project was going to get killed and that there was really not a place for me there. And I decided to take a three-month sabbatical to Cambodia. And in that process, I had the idea for a batches of one clothing company, not exactly custom, because when you say custom, everybody's like, oh my God, it's custom clothing, you can do everything. No, you can't do everything. (laughs) We have to stay within some parameters. But I had this idea for buying clothes in a way that would be a superior experience buying it online than buying it in the store, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I had that idea in Cambodia because it's one of the cheapest places in the world to produce apparel which also means it has some of the most substantial uh, environmental impacts, mm-hmm. um, impacts to the, the physical bodies of the humans. I mean, there's horrible labor practices, horrible child malnutrition, intergenerational malnutrition. I mean, Cambodia is just, uh, it's got some really, really tough 
tough issues. So I wanted to see how we could take on the second most polluting industry in the world after mm. oil and gas, which is apparel. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, I came back from my sabbatical and I was like, okay, let's just wrap everything up. I'm done now. <laughs> yeah. Being on the other side of the world will give you a different perspective and mm. you, you will come out of it doing something that you never could have imagined had you not had those experiences. So, yeah, completely. Yeah. My, my own kind of journey was kickstarted through travel and then coming back to start a travel company yeah <laughs> and yeah you, you kind of return home with a totally new perspective on the place that feels so familiar to you so you left Mozilla and you started the company I did yeah I went straight into the summer and doing market validation and running a kickstarter and getting mm. angel investment and being off to the races mm. <laughs> with a team and with a budget and okay, now I've got a CEO hat on. I didn't really see that coming, but oh, excellent. Right, what do we do wow. now? <laughs> wow. What was the Kickstarter like? The Kickstarter was exhilarating. Um, our goal was 75,000 because I didn't even want to get started on such an ambitious thing if we couldn't sell $75,000 worth. And mm -hmm. we ultimately did 90,000, which was just over a thousand women. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we raised another 250000 and on that, um, on that modest amount, we all told had a little bit less than 500000 We ran a, a company for uh, two and a half or three years, which mm -hmm. is kind of astonishing. Mm -hmm. And what was that? Like, I imagine that would be, have been a very new experience for you in many ways. Like, what do you feel like? Were some of the biggest challenges on that journey and what do you think you learned about yourself running the company the biggest thing that stands out is asking for help ah, okay. um i really didn't even realize until much later the extent to which i the reason that i wasn't asking for help is because i wasn't conscious of what a bad shape we were in. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wasn't admitting to even to myself okay. that things yeah. were as dire as they were. And even though, you know, I've always been someone who my integrity is, it's very strong, like doing the thing that's integrity. But if you are deceiving yourself, mm -hmm. you can't be honest with other people. Mm -hmm. And that is an incredibly painful lesson mm. to live through. <laughs> yeah, wow. And what were you deceiving yourself about? Just kind of the shape, the finances? and Yeah, the finances were a big piece. Um, I had hired a chief of operations because I knew that I was weak in the financial aspect. And I was terrified of it. So I thought I could hire my way out of my money wounding and that doesn't turn out to be possible. <laughs> so to, good advice for future founders. Yeah, like yeah, future founders, if you have wounding around money, you can't you just can't externalize your problems. Yes, it's great to hire people to help you do things that you're not as strong in, hmm. but 
the fundamental part of you that's terrified to look at your bank statements or to look at your run rate or whatever that part of you that just gets super squirmy and doesn't want to deal with it. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. You have to know what's really going on with your money because at the end of the day, the CEO is where the buck stops. I was the one that was in charge of getting the money in. I knew that I was on that piece. But I wasn't connected enough to what was happening with the suppliers and how far out our commitments were. And I didn't realize how over leveraged we were. So mm. when we did run out of money, it was awful. Mm. I had to put the last payroll on my credit card. Mm -hmm. We stopped operations immediately. People mm. were out of a job with no notice. I mean, it was the worst. Mm. The, the, the worst. And it was because I didn't realize how far we were over our skis. Mm. So, yeah. I vowed never to ever, ever <laughs> run a company in that way again. So. Mm. Um, and what was it that you felt like you really needed help with back then? Because it sounds like you did hire some people and so you did get some help. But what was it that, what was like the missing piece that you kind of were afraid to work for? That's a great question. Um, I think I didn't share my worries about uh, about how dire the situation got towards the end until it was already nose down into the dirt. Mm. And that in itself was that lack of transparency. And especially because I am a person who is so like what you see, what you get, high integrity. People have that expectation that they're gonna know what's coming for me because I come across as a really authentic person. But when you're deceiving yourself, yeah. <laughs> you are being authentic in your self-deception. Yeah, That's, but it's, it's such a fine line because I do think there is a degree of, I mean, people talk about you have to be delusional to a certain degree to even start a company in the first place because it is a very, challenging process and often people are trying to make real changes which don't appear kind of conceivable or possible mm. at the outset so it does seem like there is a fine line between almost like a healthy optimism versus a um, fearful delusion mm. well for me the difference between where I am now which I still do have a lot of optimism and and will to create new things mm. is um I have processes and commitments to those processes financially that will never, I will never do that mistake again. <laughs> so you kind of put systems in place yeah. for that event. Yeah, I don't, I no longer, and this is for me, it's an open question. I personally don't want to spend money ahead of what's in the bank. Mm -hmm. So I'm always running my OPEX account off of money that's collected. I'm never forecasting that we will get certain orders in and the whole like cash flow game that a lot of accountants and COOs play. That's great for them. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> I only spend based on the money that is actually in my operating expense account. So, and there's a whole system by um, Mike Michalowicz. The book is called Profit First. And it has completely changed how I think about my money. And now when I get stressed, I actually look at my bank accounts. Not mm. because I just have heaps and heaps of money. I mean, it, 
I probably had more money at the outset once I got that initial wire transfer. I had six figures in my bank account, mm -hmm. but I still didn't want to look at it because I hadn't healed my money wounds. There's no amount of money that you can get that will heal your money wounds. You mm -hmm. have to heal your, <laughs> your freak out about money. Like this idea that you're going to get fuck you money. Oh, I'm going to get $5 million and then I won't be freaked out about money anymore. No, you mm -hmm. will. Or you can have a lot smaller number than that in your bank account and be okay with that and feel abundant, feel like you can spend what you have. Mm. The, these two things are not correlated. I think that's such a huge myth around money. I agree. And I want to go into the, the next part of the startup journey, but just briefly, how do you, for people listening, how do you begin to investigate your money wounds and where did yours come from? Um, Mine came from my grandmother living through the depression. Neither my mother nor my father raised me. Um, so I learned a lot of what I know about money from my grandma. And she was of the depression era that went through starvation, that went through, you know, so much. And I found a little receipt in my grandmother's desk after she died and uh, she got $88 of food stamps, and that was for both of us. Wow. So I don't know how the hell she raised a kid on $88 worth of food stamps per month. Wow. Per month. <laughs> per month. Whoa. Yeah, even in like, that was probably 1988 or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, I learned how to squeeze blood out of a turnip, and I just think that I had just thought that that was the way life was. You're always going to squeeze blood out of a turnip. You're never going to have enough, but it'll be enough. It won't be extra. You'll never have extra. You'll never have, mm. you know, enough to, to go after the moonshot. Mm. And then when I got that six-figure wire transfer, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it happened, but I wasn't... Like your system wasn't prepared. To my system it. wasn't prepared to look at a bank balance that had six figures in it. I had absolutely zero training for operating with that. Mm. Wow. And so it sounds like a very painful experience having to shut down the company on a kind of very, very short notice and kind of letting those people go was... Was that experience a trigger for kind of burnout for you or what, what was that period like? Yeah, I didn't previously know I could get that tired. I had always been able to run on fumes mm. um, and just willpower my way through situations. Mm -hmm. But the, the tank ran out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed that it had run out of gas because I was in my apartment and I was wearing my big fluffy pink bathrobe and I sat there for hours not doing anything and thinking I should go have a shower and that you know another hour would pass and I'd be like I notice I haven't taken a shower <laughs> I, I notice I haven't eaten anything yeah. and I notice that I can't even summon the energy to do the things that would give me energy yeah. I don't have enough energy to eat I don't have enough energy to take a shower I don't have energy to go have a, even a walk around the block mm. and then I went what, what happens now <laughs> what is there when you don't have enough energy to do the things that give you energy yeah, wow. So I've just finished, um, we've been talking about this emotional resilience report and 
one of the themes in these 250 founders and leaders we've talked to is this this idea of this like death by a thousand paper cuts and then there is some kind of moment sometimes it's like a small trigger like maybe some negative feedback or something that almost like like the straw that breaks the camel's back where that emotional debt has built up to such a high degree that something just shuts down um, it's like the freeze response in the mm-hmm. in the Vegas nerve and yeah I'm curious is that is that what it felt like to you it was just that kind of accumulation over months or even years of accumulating that that debt and running on fumes that just led to that moment where you were like okay I can't do this anymore that's just where I noticed it. That's it. There was not anything necessarily that different on that day, except that you had awareness. Yeah, instead of just sitting there on a Saturday or a Sunday by myself in my apartment for hours and hours on end and not really being able to take very good care of myself, which had happened many times prior to that. Mm-hmm. That was the day that I connected the dot and went, oh, I've fallen underneath. I've spiraled down so far that I don't even know how to get back up. Mm. And that's when I had a call with my executive coach and she said, I think you need to get evaluated for depression. And I looked at her like she had three eyes and went, what? Mm. (laughs) Are you serious? Had you been in touch with her previously, like throughout that period? Yeah, yeah. She had been coaching me for, I think, about four years at that point. Okay. Yeah, but she was a good one as well. I had a lot of founder dynamics that were super challenging also. Um, ended up departing from my business partner and, you know, that whole thing, like having to buy out shares and thing. all yep. that horribleness. Mm-hmm. So she was a good one to be a mirror for me and alert me to actually things are not good with your business partner. He, you know, I remember her saying, did you notice that in the last four sessions that we've had, all we've talked about is your business partner. We haven't talked about how you manage employees. We haven't talked about any other employee. We haven't talked about marketing. We haven't talked about the product. We haven't talked about anything but your co-founder. And that's perhaps a problem you Mm -hmm. wanna look at. Mm -hmm. So let's have a different conversation, which is how do you get rid of your business partner? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So those mirrors that have that sort of wisdom to go, hey, Here's the thing you really don't want to look at, but it's time to look at. Hmm. So how did you, like, how did you pull yourself out of that? Like when you were kind of sitting there in your pink fluffy dressing gown, (laughs) (laughs) what the hell do I do with my life? Like, What happened? Like, how did you begin the recovery process? Um, I want to say, I can't remember whether that happened either right before or right after the company officially shut, but it was, it was in that period for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember the day that I packed up my little sky blue Fiat 500 with what I thought I needed for the next few weeks and pointed it South, turned in my office keys, turned in the shop, like just everything done Had a yard sale, got rid of all the last of the jeans, just like, Done, 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 done. <laughs> and it took like a whole month to shut the company down. You don't just mm-hmm. put your blog post out and then you're done. You actually have, there's work to do to shut the company. <laughs> was there a, like a grieving process for you as well? Kind of like detaching your identity from being a founder of that company? 
Yeah, that took a while for sure. And I don't think it started until I got in that Fiat and drove down to California. And I spent, I just spent a couple weeks living in a bikini at summer festivals and just like, I'm on vacation, I'm out to lunch. I have less money than I've had since yeah, a really, really long time. And I just don't care. The next two weeks, I'm there. What well, I'm obviously not going to take a job right now. I'm not going to immediately start job hunting. My brain was oatmeal and I knew it. <laughs> so fortunately, even though I had less money than I've had in a really long time, I still gave myself permission to have that sabbatical period. And I think the three months of sabbatical that I did in Cambodia laid the foundation that I didn't have that program of, oh my God, you must be working. And if you're not working, you must be looking for work. I'm like, no, Well, it sounds like you almost weren't able to work at that time. Oh God, no. But I've seen people who were not able to work that also couldn't either, they couldn't rest Mm. either. They didn't allow themselves to rest because they were so freaked out. Mm. (laughs) So... Fortunately, I did just allow myself to rest for a good long while. And it took it took a lot longer than if you had told me how long it was going to take, I definitely would have wigged out. How long did it take? Um, it was six months before I even had rested enough to realize that I was still t- I was still really tired in a way that I had never been tired before. Mm. And after six months of I think I might have taken little tiny consulting projects here and there, but it was, you know, I was definitely not working like a full-time job in that six months. And I was, I was sleeping, I was eating well, I was moving, exercising, and I still was not right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at that point that I, I realized I had to do something more substantial mm. to put myself back together. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> this like kind of cryptically wasn't really working. No, just, just like sleep and, you yeah. know. But that stuff's important to you, right? Like it, it is gets important. It you back to a foundation Absolutely. where you're then able to Absolutely. have the energy to, to dive a bit deeper. Right, right. Um, but it was a long process. I, I did get on Wellbutrin, which kind of kick-started my nervous system back into um, into a more active state. Um, I wasn't just sleeping all the time anymore. Mm. Um, and I took on some new projects and kind of got my fire back for the first time in, mm. in six months. Um, but I will say that certainly for me, it isn't a long-term solution. You get that initial burst of energy that lasts maybe three, four weeks Mm -hmm. and then the effect tapered off and then I upped my dosage and I had another like, woo. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, and then it tapered off again and I ultimately just, I got off of it entirely because it, it didn't, it really wasn't doing anything. Yeah. It's it's like, it's kind of like a band-aid. Yeah. And, and I needed it to get me out of that vagal dive. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, because I was able to actually go into back into the things that I loved and found my passion. And once I located that thread again and I had something to get up and do and be excited about, then that's what ultimately uh, I can stabilize is mm. doing the work that, that I love doing. I didn't, couldn't even answer that question for the longest. So what actually, what actually really helped? Like, what was it that you stumbled upon that really enabled that kind of deeper healing? 
The biggest thing was connecting to my intuition, mm. which, you know, I've been doing that work with my executive coach and I wouldn't have ever started my own company had I not followed my intuition to Cambodia. Like it really was a practice of, it started in a couple of really simple ways. One was taking these wanders and my only assignment when I went out for a walk was to go wherever I damn well wanted to go and to notice what I was curious about mm. and to set that usual part of my brain that's on a task and has a goal, set that side and see where the curiosity is attracted to. And I got to, I got to notice which streets I was attracted to and which things would pull me in, which things would have me stop, which ones would have me ponder which mm. ones would I actually have to stay there long enough to consider. And I learned all this stuff literally just by wandering around the streets. This is great. Were these self-assignments or was this something that someone had given to you? This was my coach. She was like, go out and yeah. just wander around. Mm. <laughs> it's probably an edge like back then, like not yeah. having an objective, like letting yes. go of any kind of outcome. Yep. And noticing things like, I hated to ever have to backtrack, hmm. hated backtracking. I, I did not want to walk down the same stretch of sidewalk. I was very motivated by novelty mm -hmm. and I didn't know that about myself at that time. Hmm. You know, you might go on a wander and discover that you love to walk down exactly the same street because your curiosity is actually going into the exact same coffee shop at exactly the same time of day and ordering exactly the same food, but you have a different conversation with the barista every day, or you sit down and draw and different people walk up to your table. Like your curiosity will find the place for you, but um, that is a really useful thing to know about yourself is to, to be able to feel your curiosity as a physical sensation in your body. Mm. I love that. And did you, so as you were walking down these streets or flaneuring, as I think Rob Potts called it, it's this French word for like wandering aimlessly, did you feel in your body like you were drawn to certain like yeah. alleyways and certain corridors? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's the most valuable about it is starting to develop the ability to sense in your body what mm. curiosity feels like. Mm. So I would do one, I would give myself different variants of it. So one day I might be like, where do my feet want to walk today? <laughs> and bringing your awareness into your feet is going to be you're walking around barefoot. Yeah. I had this extraordinary barefoot walk through San Francisco and I ended up taking, my plan had been to walk around sort of by the ocean level uh, because that I feel good with the sand, but there's it was flat in shoes, and okay. I didn't want to walk up the hill. Okay. But when I was barefoot, that's all hot concrete. So suddenly, walking up this little windy steps up to Coit Tower, that's mm. in the shade, and your and my feet were touching the wooden stair boards, and I ended up taking an entirely different path than I would have otherwise. Mm. So you can give yourself a ton of those different assignments. Where would five-year-old you walk? Where would 15-year-old you walk? Where would 80-year-old you walk? It's going to be completely different walks. Yeah, I, I love this. And so for people listening who might be curious, how would you connect this kind of permission to follow your curiosity and your, and your intuition to 
recovering from burnout? What is the connection there? Yeah, because you we're all in this world with an enormous amount of options and stimulus, right? But which thing does our deepest wisdom and curiosity actually respond to, right? Because that spark doesn't exist everywhere, you know? My dear friend Eric Hillens, his spark is for fly fishing and Chris Craft boats. And I love him and I love those things too, but I'm never going to have the same kind of spark of curiosity about that particular thing. Um, so where is your, where is your spark? I like the word respond is Latin and the second part spond is from sponda or spark. Hmm. So what is the spark that you react to? Hmm. And I have learned that in following that spark of curiosity, it will trace a path through life that you couldn't have imagined for yourself. You couldn't have put down in a five-year plan. You couldn't have validated against market testing. <laughs> Your mom doesn't know about it. <laughs> like no one can predict what this path of, mm -hmm. of spark of curiosity will take you on. But what I do know is that it is a wild and wonderful <laughs> journey that once you start to get on it, the universe holds you up in that journey and synchronicity appears mm -hmm. and magic appears and people appear to help you walk that path. And the energy to follow it comes naturally as you follow that spark mm -hmm. and this question of burnout um you know my for me personally if i'm committing to things where i have that spark of hell yes curiosity the energy to follow through on those commitments is available for me to follow through otherwise if i'm committing to things that i don't have a spark for mm -hmm. I can get in a, a situation where I'm just having to willpower grind my way through it. And that's what leads to burnout. Mm -hmm. If you're tapping on your willpower and your whatever, like I'm feeling <laughs> shame and I don't want to disappoint anybody. So yeah. I'm going to continue to do it. You're like forcing yourself. You're forcing. Yeah. Like your nose against the grindstone. Yeah. yeah. I, I really love and resonate with what you just said. And I suppose the thing that I'm curious about is what is it that, like I almost view it as this like this gunk kind of gets in the way of that natural spark and that natural curiosity, that intuition. And so what was that, I guess, accumulated gunk for you and how did you, besides walking around San Francisco Bedford, like how else did you try and kind of remove the layers of gunk that got in the way of that, mm. of that spark? Well, the, the small practices are actually really important. I think it's a combination of your daily practices which do that. Um, I also have one which is about tea as a as a Brit. I think you'll appreciate. I'd love I, to hear it. I have multiple flavors of tea, and my only job is to drink the flavor of tea that I damn well want. <laughs> <laughs> Just little silly things like that, things that you do every day that you can. They allow me to calibrate how much gunk I have in my system. Because mm. if I can't even pick a tea to drink, if I'm feeling guilty about drinking the Earl Grey because it's really nice and I might it's use it all up, then I'm feeling a lot of scarcity in my yeah. system. Sure. So those kind of daily checks mm -hmm. of, of what you're working with are really helpful. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a peak chaser. Uh, I like the peak experiences, but there have been some really significant ones in my life that have shifted my perspective in huge ways. Um, psychedelic and entheogenic experiences have been absolutely critical to mm. the, the points where I had the big aha moments, the big turning point, the clarity of, oh, 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 I see. I'm not going back to tech product work. I'm, <laughs> right. I don't know how or why or when, except that now I'm turning the corner and working on doing this shadow work integration as a healer. Mm. And you'd never experienced psychedelics prior to the burnout period? Or prior to yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And what were they what were they like for you? Like I'd love to go into a bit of detail. Like maybe maybe one of the most pivotal ceremonies or Ooh. well I'll um, give a small I just want to give a small um Explanation for people who've ne never done any type of entheogen mm -hmm. is that... Uh, can you just define entheogen? entheogen. So thing? it's the whole category of LSD, MDMA, psilocybin. Um, it doesn't include meth, cocaine, heroin, opiates. Those are, those are different categories. Mm -hmm. um, if you've never done an entheogen, then you might think that your previous experience with other drugs or with alcohol will give you some idea of what it's like to be altered in this way. And they're really not. They're not similar. It's like the difference between brown and plaid. They're just not. <laughs> it's a whole different kind of fish. It's completely. That was the biggest surprise to me when I had my first experience of coming up. I was like, wait, wait, wait. Y'all didn't tell me. <laughs> this is entirely. This is not like dr being drunk, but more. This is not like that at all. <laughs> It's actually quite razor sharp and there's a quality of presence of self that, you know, when you're very drunk, you sort of lose yourself. Mm. You lose contact, you lose the ability to move your body with fidelity, you, you know, mm. and depending on what dose you're on, of course, um, you can actually have extraordinary experiences of being able to dance and... You know, your presence to eating food can be, you know, this is the best mango I've ever had in my mm. entire life. You know, so there's a sharpness of those experiences that um, that nothing else is exactly going to give you that sense yeah. that it's going to be like that. Yeah, I love that description. It reminds me of Stan Groff Cool's, um, he was referring to LSD, but as a, as a non-specific amplifier and mm. how it will like enrich and amplify both the inner and outer experiences and how it's kind of going into these ceremonies, it's all about the set and setting where the, the setting is your external environment and the set is like your internal landscape. Like what are the thoughts going on in, in your mind? What are the stories you're telling yourself? What are the things that you're afraid to look at? Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that you became aware of and then how did those experiences in that container of psychedelic ceremony alter the trajectory of your life? Well, I have to pick on the experience I had in Mexico two years ago. By the way, I looked at my passport and I came the same week in 2018. First week of July, 2018. <laughs> first week of July, 2020. 
Uh, okay, good, cool. Um, and I was on actually quite a small dose, but this is this is the experience I'll describe as when my hands turned on. I was in Tiboslan, a Pueblo Magico. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the mythic birthplace of the Mayan and Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent god, the Kundalini. Um, <laughs> and I had what I can best describe as a Kundalini awakening, mm -hmm. um, only because I just don't even know if there's a word in English that comes close to discovering that I had the ability to feel in other people's body where the pain was held. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just like a total sixth sense opening. Like, oh, you can feel magnetic radiation with your hands now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't magnetic radiation, but it was it was that palpable. It's like pigeons can sense the Earth's magnetic right. fields. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can sense pain. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I started... Um, working with people, not doing massage, because it's not massage, but doing a, a type of manual therapy, mm -hmm. touching people and releasing where this pain was energetically held, which was related to trauma, mm -hmm. more so than like a sports massage therapist. That's definitely not right. what I am. <laughs> right, and could you define that briefly for listeners? Like, how is how would you explain that to someone? from a kind of rational perspective, like as tension mm -hmm. being held in the nervous mm -hmm. system. Yeah, so uh, our language captures this in many idioms, like, oh, that person's a pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. They come, those physically come from the experience, you know, when you're really stressed out, mm -hmm. you're not sleeping well, you're, you get a wake up and have a crick in your neck because there's a lot of stress in your life. Those, there's a straight line between those two things. <laughs> When you're not feeling well, you're physically holding tension. Mm -hmm. And if you think about some situation that brings up anger, um, you can feel the muscles in your body tension. The typical thing would be for you to feel your teeth grind or perhaps your fists tend to want to ball up. It's a little bit idiosyncratic. Different people have hold these emotions in different ways, but there are, generally speaking, some patterns of where we hold our stress. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I had Ed Dangerfield on the podcast a few episodes ago, and he was saying how anger specifically is stored in a lot in the jaw and also in the liver, and how he can, by watching someone's breathing pattern, he can kind of see where that anger is being stored, and it's using like subtle body manipulation, he can kind of help to work it and allow the breath into it to kind of allow it to be released. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've often been breathing in the way that we've been breathing our entire lives. There was, for most of us, we can't point to a, point, a, a thing and say, oh, that's when I learned how to breathe better. Mm -hmm. And if you have, you know it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, with some of my clients, we'll do sessions and I'll release the diaphragm that has been adhered. Mm -hmm. And what happens in the body is uh, the muscles will react the fastest. And if you contract a muscle for more than about 20 minutes, then the fascia comes along and says, ah, I see you would like that part of your body to be held. Let me help you. Mm -hmm. And then the fascia contracts. 
and the fascia will hold that for you so the muscle doesn't have to work so hard. Mm -hmm. And then after a, a time of the fascia being contracted chronically, then the adhesions, the scar tissue come in and say, oh, hey, I see you just don't want that part to move. Let's adhere that for you. And the body sort of glues itself together so that the fascia doesn't have to work that hard because the body is all about economy and mm -hmm. it just wants us to be able to live without pain as mm -hmm. much as possible. And it's like, okay, well, if we're going to take that muscle group out of commission, we'll just stick it together. No problem. And then after, you know, years or decades of that scar tissue being holding that, um, then the bone comes along. It's like, hey, I see you don't want that to move. Let's just go ahead and ossify that. We'll 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 grow the bone around it, so you don't have to work so hard. Right. Um, and the the body is wise in that way. It yeah. is all about the economy, mm -hmm. and you know we often tune out these pain signals because they're just not useful to know about all the time. Because mm -hmm. it's like if you your neighbor has a leaf blower going, and you're on a conference call. You can't listen to the leaf blower. You have to listen to the other stuff. So the body is constantly muting these signals of pain. Mm. And it's only when someone like me or um, someone comes along and brings your awareness in a tender way to that place in the body where the pain is stored, yeah. then you're like, oh my God, yeah. why am I suddenly feeling tingling in my feet? It's like, you've been feeling tingling in your feet for 42 years. Yeah. You just shut that signal down. This is really powerful. And I love the metaphor of a leaf blower as well. And I, I guess the question for me, having just been kind of researching this topic of emotional resilience for a long period of time, for someone listening who might suspect that they have a degree of emotional debt and these kind of tensions built up that they're slightly under their everyday conscious awareness, what might be some practices or modalities or questions to ask to very gently begin that kind of excavation process? I guess you might also call it shadow work to some degree mm -hmm. as well, but what is yeah. that? Could you give people like a brief roadmap mm -hmm. if they're, they're willing to go there? Well, I just first want to say that if you're just hearing this, it can feel incredibly overwhelming to know that there are sources of pain that are underneath your consciousness mm -hmm. and you don't know about them and you're just hearing this and you don't know what to do about it. It can be really upsetting. <laughs> it kind of makes you want to like just push down further. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, no, fuck this. Like. I've got a brick underneath my front room rug and, and everybody's got one and we're just going to keep sweeping them under there and don't mention it. Don't talk about yeah, it. I'm I'm just going to keep forging ahead, gritting my yeah. teeth, and that feels, yeah. that feels yeah. easier. Stop complaining. Stop blaming your parents. Just get on with it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you're getting on with it and your life is, is good and, like, great, the body's all about economy. Mm -hmm. Like, wonderful. Go live your life. Be happy. Um, where there is an invitation from your body is when there's a place that you just you keep trying to sweep it under the rug and it ain't gonna be swept no more mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so perhaps there's something that's the, a pot on the front of the stove that's boiling over well that's the thing to address and the news isn't oh my god there's so many pots on the stove that are boiling over it's like you already know there's a pot on the stove that's boiling over. You didn't have any idea what to do about it. There is a toolkit of things to do about it um, that are quite a bit different than the standard cognitive behavior therapy, which is great. Love it. Did a lot of it. Helped me out a ton. And 
um, getting underneath into the unconscious, working with dreams, you know, we do this stuff when it is time to do it. And there is a natural wisdom of the body in only surfacing what you actually have the capacity to heal mm -hmm. at this moment. Mm -hmm. So what might be some examples of or like tools in that toolkit? Mm, so many. Oh, Lord. Um, it is quite different. It is quite different for every person. God, this is such a hard problem. It's hard to give any general advice that isn't going to sound incredibly useless. <laughs> but I'll, I'll right. do the best that I can. Uh, the thing that comes to me is, is like start with your neighbors or sweep your own front porch, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit. We all know the basics, but I do want to underline there's a couple pillars of basic health that if you're not doing, you're not really even ready to start with, with shadow work. Mm -hmm. So, um, making sure that if you're having insomnia that you're addressing that um food sleep <laughs> um those are those really do have to underlie all of mental health if you've got severe food sensitivity issues mm -hmm. um if you're having panic attacks it's not time to start doing shadow shadow work yet uh, it's not time to be doing entheogens. If you have um, paranoia, psychosis, hallucinogen, hallucinations, it's not time to do hallucinogens. Um, so there's quite a bit of qualifiers, mm -hmm. right? Um, and finding, finding someone who has an overview of health, both from a mental and a physical health perspective is incredibly helpful because, you know, going back to food sensitivities, I've got, I've had a couple of clients that have really serious, serious, not being able to eat much of anything. And, you know, you get in the situation where their body's not even taking on enough nutrition to, mm -hmm. um, to, to fuel the brain, mm -hmm. to do the basics. So, um, I still don't feel like I, I, I need to think about this for a second. It's a serious, this is a really serious question. Mm. Perhaps are there any questions that you might offer for them to reflect on that might kind of guide them in, in the right direction? I have to put my foot on the ground of trusting that the universe has resourced us all with exactly what we need in this moment. So... If you are looking to take the next step, you know, that old chestnut of when the student is ready, the teacher appears, which can kind of sound a little bit judgy. Mm -hmm. um, it can, you can take it in a way that's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not developed enough, I'm not farther, far enough along, or I would have a teacher. Like, no, actually, there's probably somebody right next door to you in some way, shape, or one. There's probably somebody already in your awareness mm -hmm. that you can reach out to. Um, or there's some close friend of yours that knows you well enough to point you in the direction of a healer or a resource that you can start to connect into. I mean, I have my favorite people that I, <laughs> that I stand on, but it's... 
uh, it's going to be different. Everybody, I think there's there's so many, what's the beautiful Buddhist thing, 64,000 doors or something like that. Um, many, many, many doors to awakening. And I, for myself, I tended to send my clients to teachers that reinforce your own sovereignty. They mm-hmm. teach you to heal yourself. Mm-hmm. I find it's problematic to work with healers who think that they heal you. Yeah. As yeah. a healer, I don't heal anyone. And if you look at, you know, let's even take the most medically left brain version of a healer, like a surgeon, right? If you go in for knee surgery, that surgeon does not heal you. You're going to come out of knee surgery being unable to walk. The day after you have knee surgery, you will not walk. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) You're going to feel way worse the day after knee surgery than when you went in. It's only your own body's ability to integrate the change that the surgeon brought to your body that's going to bring healing to your body. Do you know Mm. what I mean? Yeah, and it's a really interesting topic of discussion that we've been going through in the breathwork facilitator training and this idea that as a breath worker, if you are, um, if you're almost taking credit for the healing experience that people have in that circle, you're doing them a huge disservice oh, and you're, yes. and you're disempowering them in, oh, a, Lord, yes. in a really big way. And it seems like there's a really, a really subtle line between creating a very safe container for people versus, um, thinking that you're the one that is kind of fixing them in some way. Absolutely. And and there's, there's a term that um, my friend Carl Richards uses called the last guru. And for him, he kind of presents himself as the, as the guru that has the answers to whatever problem his client is going through. And then over the course of working together, he will gradually like die and kind of fade away and like hand the power back over to his client mm-hmm. or to who's, who's working to you and kind of remind them that they are their own mentor. They are their mm-hmm. own guru. They, are, they have the power to heal themselves. And yeah. I think that's really powerful, but it's also, it's very counter to the culture that we were brought up in, where we, we you know, we take medications to fix ourselves. We, we fix everything in the external world to be okay. And it's, I yeah. think it's a very big shift for people to go through psychologically. It is. And I think it's actually quite related to the, the big trauma that sort of a collective, the world is working through right now with narcissistic leaders. Mm. Um, because when I describe this, this way that we've engaged with healers as the healer heals the other person, um, for me, that is, that is a wounded healer. That's a codependence. That's an unhealthy way to set up the dynamic between healer and, uh, and client, right? Um, even saying the words healer and client has this would, implied hierarchy. Would you hierarchy. use like would midwife be a kind of better or, or like guide or just guide? I like the word yeah, I like the word guide a lot. And honestly, all of them can be misunderstood. They all boot up this converse, this this concept that uh, I'm going to go for my therapy session and the therapist is going to fix me, or I'm going to go to the doctor and the doctor is going to fix me. Um, and what I work on with with my clients is you're in, you're only in session two hours every two weeks. 
what are you doing the other 13 days and 22 hours? <laughs> if we're not, and the healing doesn't happen in the session, it happens in the integration anyway. So I can bring your awareness uh, to a, a new pattern, a new way of responding when you get triggered. But unless you get triggered in the rest of your life and choose to act differently, you haven't actually integrated that healing. You have an intellectual awareness of it, but you haven't healed it. Mm, yeah, and that feels to me like a huge risk of some of these entheogenic ceremonies where people do have these peak experiences, but then there is no time for integration. Some of them will you know, go straight back to work on the next Monday morning, and it's like, like no, 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 that's that's crazy. That's definitely not, not advised. Well, it you it's going to take a while to integrate it, right? Because you've got a glimpse of awareness, but it can lead to an existential crisis mm -hmm. because now you know how shitty you are <laughs> and you don't have any ability to do anything different. You see how broken lost your capacity to bullshit yourself. Yeah. You can't bullshit yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. You know that that dance that you were dancing is broken mm -hmm. and you don't know how to dance the new dance yet. Mm -hmm. So that's a really uncommon and you will figure mm -hmm. it out, but if you have a guide that can not only show you that you're doing some bullshit, but actually work with you to discover what your new dance is, mm. then yeah, it can be a rough, it can be a rough time. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Okay. So there's a couple of other topics that I'd love to love to cover with you. And one of them, which is pretty related is what do you feel like are some myths in this world in this world of shadow work in this world of personal development like what are some things that you hear in the popular culture that just like that is that is not helpful that's not serving anyone mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well we we covered the big one that that the healer is going to heal you um that your problems are going to go away <laughs> <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it but <laughs> you know i've done an enormous amount of shadow work I am a guide myself and I still have shitty days um do you think the problems change or do you think they um, yes and no um what what changes like my mom is is having a health crisis right now she may die very soon you know the need to grieve your parents is a problem that most of us are going to it's an experience we're mostly going to have right mm -hmm. you're going to have your parents die whether you do shadow work or not <laughs> mm -hmm. you know um so, so just to kind of be specific here do you feel like it's not going to preclude you from experiencing pain it will but it will give you the tools you. to move through the pain when it arises Yes. There's something deeper than that, though. It makes the pain into a gift in a way that you don't, uh, I wouldn't have otherwise had access to. So when I lost my father at 19 years old, when I lost my grandmother at 29 years old, mm -hmm. I was very, very afraid of death. And I wasn't in the room. I didn't want to be in the room with either of them. And so I missed the moment where their spirit left their body. I missed their last breath. I wasn't there holding their hand because I was too scared. Mm. So I didn't get to have that experience. And I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't supported in it. You know, it was pretty horrific, medicalized death in the hospital. Mm. Not the death that I would want for myself. 
Um, and I don't get to choose the death that my mother will have either. She may have a medical di medicalized death as well. Who knows? I don't get to write her path. But I have a willingness to engage with her in her dying process and see it as a process. And actually, there is a part of me that is... Um, it sounds really, really weird to say it, but I'm excited to see, to go through this because I have a completely different perspective on death now. And I know that there are gifts in death mm -hmm. that I didn't know existed. I didn't know that there was any reason to want to be with someone while they died mm -hmm. before. Um, and she sent me a text message the other day saying, I'm with you always. And if you knew my mother... This is overstating it, but my mother has a, a personality disorder and she doesn't say stuff like that. It'd be like if your care bearer turned to you and said that, you'd be like, what? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> this is my, my mother has not ever told me she was proud of me. She has a personality disorder that means that she doesn't connect on that emotional level. So I can see that her consciousness is shifting in profound ways. And there will be opportunities to connect with her in ways that I could never connect in the previous whole decades of my life. She's 67. She's nearing the end of her life. There are things that happen as you are walking to the finish line <laughs> that shift. Mm. And it's almost like a stripping away, I guess. A stripping away happens. A lot of the bullshit conditioning just is irrelevant when you know you're going to die soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I see it as a journey and I, I legit see it as a journey and I know that there will be some heartbreakingly beautiful moments and I'm not afraid of them in the way that I was afraid before. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the whole, the whole path that your life traces changes hmm. when you start to realize you're dancing with reality instead of it being imposed on you mm. and something you just have to endure yeah and not treating pain or even death as something to be avoided at all costs and to run away from but to see to look for the gifts within them without bypassing the heartbreak that it's caused mm -hmm. and to see the heartbreak as the sacred wound that leads to greater connection yeah yeah, because there's there's not heartbreak without it also being heartbreakingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's just that bittersweetness is... Once you tap into... I, I certainly have not had an experience of heartbreak that hasn't also been heartbreakingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I always think of bittersweet chocolate and yeah. really hoppy beer. Like <laughs> the, the legendarily beautiful foods. I like that are bittersweet yeah I, I think of it as like exquisite tenderness and I and I think of the the actual felt experience is for me indistinguishable from joy it's just the story that we're telling ourselves yeah it? it's that sense of like real heart open kind of connection and the more you dive into the uncomfortable emotions they actually shift. And this is what I do with my clients. We dive straight into the center of the jelly donut. We just, we go right into that nausea or right into that flare up of pain in your heart. Or like when you really start to bring your awareness back into your body, if you haven't been doing so in say 
two, three, four, five decades, <laughs> the very first things that you're going to find may well be uncomfortable because it's kind of like a little kid who's been pulling at mom's apron strings and mom's been like, no, 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 I don't have time. I don't want to listen to you. Um, by the time you give some attention to these things, they're painful and mm -hmm. That's okay because on the other side of it, once you face the pain and dive into the pain, there is joy. There is bliss. It's not a continuum that's linear from left to right. It's mm -hmm. a circle. Mm -hmm. If you go far enough into the pain, it becomes bliss. And the other opposite is true. If you go into the joy, there will be a big, a big voice in your head that's like, but wait, we don't get to be happy, bro. So it's literally a circle. If you go into the pain, it becomes joy. If you go into joy, it becomes pain. It's, mm. <laughs> it's all just sensation. Yeah, I, I love that. It reminds me of the Rumi quote that the, the cure for the pain is in the pain. Mm -hmm. I think he's speaking to something similar. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that feels like a, a good segue to talk about your latest project, which has been a labor of love for multiple years now. And it's this tarot deck that you are in the final stages of completing. Yay! Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. Um, and I've seen the kind of evolution of this deck over the over the last few months. And could you, for someone who has never like really seen or doesn't really know that much about tarot, could you explain like what what is the what was the inception for this project and and what are you hoping to achieve by putting mm. it into the world? Yeah. So. Um, it is, in a sense, a tarot deck in that it is intended for you to use it in um, in a fashion where you shuffle it and ask it a question and get clarity. Um, it's not a tarot deck in the sense that it's not 78 cards and it doesn't have four suits and a major arcana. It doesn't come okay. with that framework and archetypal um, system. But it does come with a system that I've created around the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. um, and don't worry if you don't know what the Enneagram is. This is actually a deck that's intended to be used by people who know nothing about the Enneagram. It's sort of a doorway to that. Um, but the Enneagram is organized around our different personality woundings and the emotions that each of those personality archetypes most struggle with. So, for example, um, an Enneagram 2 type is, going back to that healer, the person who's like, problem? What problem? I don't have a problem. I'm here to help you. <laughs> and never actually brings their awareness within themselves and asks for their own needs to be met. Mm -hmm. Very, very different from, say, uh, a type 7, which is the person who's constantly affected by FOMO and, you know, when they're on vacation, can't even enjoy the vacation that they're on. They're mm -hmm. already on to like, I mean, Morocco is nice, but let's go to Bali next time. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely have tendencies. <laughs> yeah. Um, so knowing that gave me a system to sort of look at, because I made the deck for two years without any kind of overarching system. Mm -hmm. And I had this unease, like, Oh, this is all from my perspective. What am I missing? What was the inception? Like, why did you decide to make it? Oh, yeah. That. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Going from uh, kind of like 
CEO of an AI clothing company to <laughs> Formula to making a tarot deck. Like it's like, a really straight line. You know. <laughs> <laughs> How do those dots connect? Oh lord. Well, I did go from human-centered design to human design in a way. Um, I've always been interested in what has a human feel like themselves. Can they take action on something they care about? Um, but this process of having burned out and having to become a human being again instead of just a human doing that's always go, go, go to prove how valuable I am, to earn the worth, and oh my goodness. Yeah, that doesn't really work. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that I did to cure the burnout was walk the Camino de Santiago mm. in Spain. Walking is such a big medicine for me, very connected to that intuition wandering. That was sort of my culmination of the wandering was mm. to wander Spain wow, yeah. <laughs> and to follow the pilgrim's trail that so many feet have. Yeah. David White has a beautiful mm. poem finished there about the, the culmination of the Camino de Santiago. Yeah, yeah, it just brings the wander into a, this archetypal context of the pilgrimage that is in nearly every ancient tradition has a pilgrimage tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a real rite of passage for me. And I came back after walking the Camino and was sitting on a rock out in the ocean near San Francisco. And I took my journal and I started writing and I'm like, that's it. I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book about the Camino de Santiago. And I kept writing and I kept writing. And at about four months in, I had no idea what I had written, which topics I had and had not covered. And I felt like I was sitting in a disgusting cold bathtub of spaghetti, like Chef Boyardee with one long noodle of one idea. And I didn't have the slightest idea what to write next. And I wasn't willing to stop writing but I didn't know how to go forward either it's one of these like I can't go forward and I can't go back and I'm stuck and I hate this and I don't know what to do which is always your catharsis moment right uh and my catharsis was oh I'm making a card deck hmm. if I make every chapter the guide to the cards, then I can go back and I can slice and dice and I can figure out what the hell I've written. <laughs> right, so the card deck became the structure. It became the, the structure. For these writings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I actually brought the little index cards that were the very, very first prototype nice. of the card deck. Nice. And I would just live my life. And as I personally went through different polarities, I would um, I would make a card about it, and I would write the card deck text, mm. and then eventually my next big catharsis was was having this realization that inside every uncomfortable emotion was actually a gem of wisdom mm. of what that uncomfortable emotion was pointing me in the direction. I love of. that. Could you give an example? Yeah, um, jealousy. Mm -hmm. Jealousy is one of my elite. It, previously, it's still hard for me. These are not the comfortable. It never gets super comfortable, but at least you have a sense of like, oh, here's this thing. I know how to, oh God, I hate this, but I know, I know what we're doing with this. Right. Here. I, have a, I got, I got a signpost. Mm -hmm. I know where we're going. Um, so now when jealousy arises in me, I no longer judge myself as a piece of shit for being jealous of somebody. So I just like wiped away the shame story uh -huh. that I should never be jealous. And uh -huh. if I was just more spiritually evolved, I wouldn't get jealous of people. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
peanut butter. It's all peanut butter. It's not helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So now when I feel jealousy, what I immediately know it's telling me is that person either embodies a characteristic or has something Mm -hmm. that I want. Right. And then I can go, well, what exactly, what specifically is it? Because it it tends to just be like, oh, I'm jealous of this person. You're probably not jealous of a person. You're jealous of something specific. Mm -hmm. You're jealous of how awesome they are at cooking. You're jealous at their awesome hair or, you know, like really figure out what it is that you're jealous of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then know that you can give yourself permission to have that thing. Mm -hmm. But deeper than that, because often we want to pin our ability to heal something on like, oh, I will, I won't be jealous anymore once I can cook that well, whatever that object is. No, 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 no. The deeper layer is getting into how would you feel if you could cook that well? Mm -hmm. That, that is where the good stuff is. Because I guarantee you, if you get enough layers down to understanding what's under there. Oh, I really wish that I could cook because, I don't know, let me make up a story. Because I really miss my mom and my mom was a great cook and I'm so sad that I never learned how to cook from her. Mm. Now we've got something we can right. work with. Yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the polarity of jealousy desire. North Star. North it's what, it's, what, is it, um, what is it giving you permission to move in the direction of? Mm. And how can you notice that you can feel how you imagine you would feel Mm -hmm. if you could cook. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit inside out, so let me say it again. Let's pretend I'm jealous of my friend because they cook really well. Okay, how would I feel if I could cook really well? Oh, I would feel like I could invite friends over and be a really great host. Okay, how would it feel? Let me imagine, okay, who would I invite over? Get really, really specific. Okay, I'd invite... Kelly and Kenny and Johnny and we'd have like an awesome pescado feast and what would it feel like in my body if that was true just pretend put it on like a suit of clothes feel that feeling okay now I can feel it located get really specific what color what texture oh it's kind of like a light blue fluffy feeling in my belly ah now we know where it originates from. Right. Notice that you can already feel that feeling in your body, even though nothing about your external circumstances have changed. Mm. And then amplify that. Get that to be as big as it can get mm-hmm. and focus on that feeling. And that's the thing. That is the thing that's immediately accessible. You have spent zero dollars to do this. You've not enrolled yourself <laughs> in cooking free. school. There's no courses. There's no, you don't need to sign up for a <laughs> course. You don't need to, you know, like none of, none of your brain's ideas about why it is that you can't feel that way are actually true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Could yeah. you give a few more examples of those like polarity combinations? And for someone who has never, maybe even like never even heard of tarot, why like why should they care? Why would it be useful for them to have a deck mm. to experiment with mm. and explore with? Yeah, I would say because we're in a point where up is down and left is right, and people are feeling incredibly disoriented incredibly incredibly stressed out about what's going on in the world and our existing ways of living 
making decisions, of connecting with other humans, like everything has been turned upside down. And a lot of our existing um, coping strategies are just are not available to us anymore. And I actually think that that's the gift and invitation of this time is to dig deeper and figure out what is really possible. Mm. Um, so in these times when, um, when there's a, it's a catharsis point, like I was describing, you can't go back. You don't know how to go forward. You don't want to stay where you are. Mm, it's like the, the space between stories. Well, it's the liminal space, liminal space. You know, yeah. there's there's this moment of everything melting down and what is going to come after this has yet to be decided or defined. The caterpillar turning into Absolutely. It's the liminal goo, the imaginal cells. Um, and I think it's it's becoming more clear. Mm-hmm. to a lot of people that, that were in the goo. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in that goo space, there are tools to navigate still in the goo, but there are a completely different set mm-hmm. of tools than people might have used. And our ancient wisdom knew about those tools. And we got a really, really long way with a scientific mindset and we're not going to throw that away mm-hmm. at all that was completely needed so what i'm proposing is not to take the place of science it's that um these more divinatory arts the feminine ways of knowing um are the pillar that stands right next to the science mm-hmm. and we're a lot more sturdy when we have both of those pillars to orient by and make sense mm-hmm. Hmm. So let's say I buy the deck, I back the Kickstarter, it arrives <laughs> for Christmas. Spoiler alert. <laughs> how like how would I kind of or how would you imagine people using this on a kind of daily basis? Like what's the scenario where I'd like, oh I'm gonna try drawing a card and ask some questions. Like what, yeah. what does that look like? Because I think yeah. people will probably struggle with like really connecting this to like how is it useful? Yeah, totally. Basis? How does it integrate into my life? Well, there's going to be a great little booklet that will explain all of this. Okay. So I'm not going to be able to give everything in here, but I'll have little suggested card spreads sure. that you can use in different mm-hmm. scenarios. But a basic, one of the basic ways to use it. Um, I like to go back to the what's on the front burner. What's, what's mm-hmm. in the pot that's boiling over in your life? And if you take a deep couple couple deep breaths and ask yourself that question, you will quickly get the answer. Like, oh my God, there's these three things and they're all really big. And um, if there's so much that so many boiling pots that you can't tell which one to even choose, mm-hmm. first of all, take a deep breath <laughs> and let your body settle a bit. You you know any of the sort of mindfulness meditative practices that you do, whether that's movement based or more straight up breath work or meditation, all of that is a great foundation to start with, to get yourself in a space to be ready to turn a card. It's not just the moment of turning the card that's important. It's getting yourself settled enough to even know which is actually the most important pot that's boiling over on the stove. And would you frame that pot as a question? It can be as simple as I need advice working through 
this scenario. Mm -hmm. And that is, you can go two, three years, and that's the only question you use mm -hmm. with your card deck. Mm -hmm. That you've got worlds to explore mm -hmm. <laughs> with just that one simple question. Mm -hmm. And then um, you draw a card based on that. You have a clear context. You say, I just need advice with this. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And you might turn the, uh, the forgiveness and bitterness card. That's one of the polarities. Or you might turn the panic and incubate card. So if we use a specific example, say say my my burning pot is I'm on the edge of this this launch of mm. this report I've been working on it for a lot of time. There's there's a feeling of like nervousness and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like will it be received? Mm -hmm. Like what will people say? Will it lead to the outcomes I'm hoping for? So yeah. I'm kind of sitting with that and I draw a card. Well, why don't we do it? Why don't you just go to becomingdragon.com and, okay. and grab a card? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, for people who are listening, this is going to be aired when the Kickstarter goes live. Yeah. So how do people find out more about the project, more about you? Um, where would you direct them to? Yeah, becomingdragon.com mm -hmm. will have... Uh, the description of the project and the ability to draw a card and uh, up until the launch you can get on the newsletter so that you can get a note exactly when it launches because we're going to be doing some sweet early bird pricing and cool. and good juju VIP packs with some I think we're going to do these little skulls from here in Oaxaca oh nice yeah and those will be limited we won't, we'll have a limited, literally what I can carry in my suitcase back to Portland. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Well, in, in that case, this episode will go live a week before the yeah. Kickstarter yeah, yeah, yeah. is launched. And then um, after the Kickstarter is launched, it will be, uh, there'll be a link to the Kickstarter. Yeah. And and if it's after the Kickstarter, then there's going to be, we're doing fulfillment via back kit. So cool. um, I'm not sure exactly what that world will be looking at, but Becoming Dragon is going to have the, the one, place. One step at a time. <laughs> one step at a time. One step at a time. But it's honestly bigger than the card deck because mm. it is intended, the audience is people, you know, if you have a rich history with tarot and divination, please come and join us. But I'm writing the guidebook for people who have never used a card deck before, who know nothing about the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be hosting um, most likely weekly uh, group events for us to all come and be in conversation with each other about uncomfortable emotions mm. and do readings for each other and do emotional co-regulation exercises cool. and just play in this space because mm. goodness knows we got 64 different emotional polarities to explore. If, let's just pretend each of those took two weeks which I think is conservative. We're looking at like three years worth of curriculum. Yeah, yeah. So you just dip your toe in at whatever point, get on the mailing list, and we'll give you a little heads up. Like, oh, we're going to do a three-week series on jealousy, or we're going to do a three-week series on forgiveness. So that. yeah. that's the point. The The card deck is really just the entryway. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the, the death over dinner conversations that yeah. happened in San Francisco. I, I love that. So... um. Just one one more question to close. Um, you've probably heard the, the real cake quote a few times around treating the questions as if they were like locked rooms and gradually living our way into the answer. What would you say is a question that you are currently 
living into and what question might you leave our listeners with? Yeah, that's beautiful. My question is navigating the apparent contradiction between adventure and intimacy, Mm. right? Um, How do you stay with a relationship long enough to get to those really deep layers of conversation that you don't have when you've only known somebody for six months? You know, there's conversations you only can have when you've known someone 10, 15 years, right? And how do you have those connections and travel? Like travel and adventure is such a big value for me as well. And those seem to be like, how do you get to have your cake and eat it too? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm navigating that being here in Oaxaca, having joined you <laughs> after meeting on the internet. <laughs> Sure, I'll come to the human chores. Yeah. Talking about David Wade. Get carried away by mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. I I love that. Yeah, and I think of the there's a kind of intimacy of adventure as well as the the adventure of intimacy. I think they're both beautifully intertwined. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris. Well, thank you, thank you so much. This has been this has been fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me to Oaxaca. <laughs> Right, we will wrap the show with that. You. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.